Hi, everybody. It's Joey Remini here from seekingbalance.com.au. And I'm really pleased to be talking with an expert in ear, nose, and throat surgery. So I've got Harry Jayarajan here, who's a surgeon based in Melbourne. So welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, as a vestibular audiologist, I really love talking about the inner ears. And it's one of those you can nerd out on it and get a bit geeky and, you know, talk about how interesting they are at that real mechanical level. So for me, it's kind of exciting to have someone who I know knows more than me about this and I can like pick your brain. So what Harry and I wanna talk about today is superior canal dehiscence, also known as SCD. And do you know the prevalence of this condition? It's... Um, look, I think it's, it's still not clearly known. Um, we know that uh, anatomic studies have shown that almost one, sometimes up to 2% of people have anatomically thinned uh, skull bases over the area of the superior canal, but the yeah. vast majority of them are not symptomatic, as I'm sure you'd know. Yes. So I was, I was actually going to say, I think it's around the 2% mark. Yeah. And so what we're talking about is inside the ear. So obviously we've got the outer ear here. And as you travel in, you've got like a little carport area, which is an airfield cavity called the middle ear. And that's protecting our beautiful ossicle bones and inner ear mucosal regions from the weather. So that's like a little airfield carport. And then traveling deeper into the ear, we have our otoliths, which help us detect accelerations and ups and downs and tilts. And then we have our three canals, which help us ex do rotations and movements and, um, the superior canal can sometimes get a thinning of the bone. And so the whole inner ear cavity has like a helmet. It's protected by bone so we can play our football and, you know, get a knock to the head and it's protected. But there can be a thinning genetically in 2% of the population and it can create a trampoline effect. And this creates bouncing sensations when you're not moving. So you could be coughing or sneezing or talking or singing in a choir and you're actually getting spinning vertigo. So this condition is superior canal dehiscence, a thinning of a bone in a, one of the semicircular canals. And so Harry and I are going to talk a little bit about the inner ear and the anatomy so you can learn about it. We're going to talk about what investigation techniques are needed so you can get a diagnosis. And we're going to talk about the common symptoms for these people. And like Harry said, some people will have the condition, but no symptoms. And I've seen that too. So we're going to try and flesh it out. And there's also a new surgical technique, which has been successful in some of my clients. And one of my clients recently saw Harry and I said, Harry, I want to talk to you about this because it's exciting. And I think it's something that's a great YouTube topic. So do you want to talk a little bit about the inner ear, Harry, and maybe just about how do we know where the superior can, just the, like just the location of things. So if we go into the inner ear specifically. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so exactly like you said, Joey. So um, the inner ear is divided. Uh, I guess we divide the inner ear functionally into the cochlear and the vestibular labyrinth uh, mm -hmm. because functionally they they are separate or disparate structures, but they are connected via what we call the endothelium. Um, and normally, through normal functioning, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know. Vestibular disorders don't necessarily have a direct correlation or direct um, audiologic correlation per se. Yeah. So, uh, can yeah. I just translate that into simple terms? Yeah. And that is you can have zero balance function and perfect hearing, or you could have 
zero hearing and perfect balance function. So they're kind of like neighbors anatomically where they sit side by side, but they're actually independent of each other. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, the reason what makes, what makes can, uh, certain conditions like supraecanal dehiscence syndrome or, you know, or conditions that are uh, related to hydrate problems like men's disease unique is that it's one problem that affects both your hearing and your balance at the same time. And that's because it's a problem directly with the endolymphatic space. So um, the, the structures within the inner ear uh, are housed, so uh, are, it's a bony kind of structure that is filled with fluid. And mm -hmm. the fluid compartment is housed within a membrane structure and that fluid is maintained at a certain pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, problems with, the problem with many ears disease is predominantly a problem with pressure regulation, or we assume it's due to a problem with pressure regulation within this fluid-filled compartment. Uh, and sudden fluctuations in, in that fluid pressure have direct effects that affect your balance and your hearing. Yeah. So just to clarify for those of you listening, many ears is a condition also probably genetic. And it's when the ears get so excited, they create too much of this special salty fluid in the ears called endolymph. And the ear doesn't even know where to store it. So it balloons up and it fills up and it's like this pressure. And if you can think about a contained healthy system, the pressure's regulated and all the fluids moving at a very mechanically precise, like space and way and flow and when you add in extra fluid and it balloons open and fills up it ch completely changes the balance and hearing apparatus and in some cases the membranes rupture and the special fluids actually toxically mix and you get permanent damage to the inner ear structures so that's many ears and superior canal dehiscence is slightly different but it's still a change in pressure in this controlled environment and that's coming through the thinning of the bone or the helmet protective layer. So do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So I guess the moving from many years to supraecanal dehiscence, the problem actually is now, now that the, the system itself isn't a contained system. So mm -hmm. suddenly you've got a contained system with an opening into a third space. And so normally within a well-contained system where the pressure in that endolymphatic space is constant um, any potential movement or forces transmitted don't really uh, aren't actually transmitted to any one particular part they're not transmitted particularly mm -hmm. to the balance part or to the hearing part and there's no communication between the two because the fluid is relatively static however when you have an opening in this system uh, what ends up happening is there's now a shift in the balance so normally uh, you mentioned, you briefly mentioned about the three windows before. Normally when sound gets transmitted into the inner ear, it, uh, sound pressure waves cause a vibration in the eardrum, which mm -hmm. then cause transmission through the ossicles and finally on to the window. That window is one window which opens into the end of, well, onto the endolymphatic space. When you get air pressure, that air pressure is transmitted almost like a piston and causes a pressure wave through the fluid of the endolymphatic space. Now, that, that pressure wave has to be accommodated somehow, and we, we theorise that, that, that in a closed system, that pressure is then relieved through 
a second window called the round window, which is also located in, you know, at the, in the inner side of the, of the middle ear, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So in a normal functioning system, any pressure that goes in by the oval window is immediately accommodated via the round window. Yeah. it's still a closed system within the ear. With superior canal dehiscence syndrome, what happens is there's an extra window that's lo- located on the cochlear side, but it's located on the vestibular side, as you see in the superior part of the superior canal. The reason this forms a problem is suddenly there's another route for the pressure to, to be diverted. And so instead of just going the pressure coming in through the oval window and then being relieved in the round window, some of that pressure gets diverted towards the superior canal, causing a functional effect in the balance system. The way that happens scientifically is, I guess you could say, any positive deflection in the oval window causes what we call an ampullofugal rotation of fluid through the superior canal which suddenly results in a combined problem uh, or combined effect on someone's balance, which wouldn't have existed if that system was closed. So just, yeah, it does to me. And I just want to like try and if you can look at my hands here, it's almost like we've got two windows and as the, so we've got these little inner ear bones, which are vibrating and tapping our eardrum. And then that's creating some movement and vibration signals that's traveling through water, coming through fluid. And so we've got these windows kind of popping in and out with each other because they're kind of working as a team. And so that's all good and well. But if you add in a third window, it means information can come in and then start moving over here at the superior canal. And that can create movement of eye muscles. So the balance system starts to go like this. So someone could be sneezing, coughing or talking and the vibrations don't have that lovely kind of relationship between the oval and round window, and the vibrations can actually go into the balance organs and create vertigo. So you've got three moving trampoline areas instead of two. And so people can get autophony, which means they can hear the sound of their own bodies extremely loudly. It's it's a much more abnormal volume. So it could be heartbeat, could be chewing, could be swallowing. And while it's harmless, like that's not going to hurt you, it just can be upsetting and create anxiety and fear. And that's really where I come into it. I help people hear their body and kind of listen to what's going on and normalize it, not be afraid of their body. And so that's equally important in the surgical investigation process before you have any surgery and then also after as you're readjusting. So in a perfect world, we only have two of these trampolines moving and the information is delivered in a closed and clean environment and that's what we consider normal. And for some people, they will have three windows their whole life and that is normal to them. They don't know any difference. The three windows is just what they're used to. So they don't need surgery because there's no symptoms, I suppose. It's, it's normalised. Yeah. But do you want to talk about when does a surgeon think, okay, this is serious and I want to help you and I think invasive surgery with potential side effects is the best movement forwards? Like when is, when is going down that surgical route, you're thinking, yep, let's do it? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I think is, the first step is really sort of... Um, is confidently diagnosing a supraecanal dehiscence because yep. um, the problem is that it's it's you know like we said 
a lot of people will have a thinning or radiologic thinning or absence of bone over the superior canal and have no symptoms. And we don't really, I mean, it's, it's a very, superior canal dehiscence syndrome is a very new phenomenon. I mean, mm-hmm. I only really described it in 1998. So it is something that's still relatively new. And so we don't understand all the ins and outs of it, but what we can appreciate is that there is a huge uh, spectrum of presentation and symptoms can be very, and as with a lot of symptoms or, um, or, or otologic symptoms, there's a lot of overlap between supracanal dehiscence syndrome and a range of other radiologic conditions. And so the first step is really making sure we have the right diagnosis before we put anyone through surgery. And we know that radiology alone is not enough um, because it's just not sensitive. A CT scan just isn't sensitive enough. So the first step is really cinching the diagnosis and we use uh, VEMPS, um, we use CVEMPS really to sort of physiologically confirm someone has supracanal dehiscence syndrome. Great. So just to summarise, the CT scan, it's a black and white image like an X-ray, and the surgeons are looking at how thick is the bone around that inner ear component, the superior canal. And they are wonderful and the scans are quite good, but they're not necessarily like 100% accurate and there can be like a little bit of give and take. So the surgeons are having to really gather multiple bits of information just to get the full story. And so VEMPS, vestibular evoked myogenic potentials, that's something that often a vestibular audiologist will do in a clinic setting. And it's when we put in very loud sounds, 100 decibels, so very loud, into one ear at a time, and we're checking to see if that loud sound vibration is going to generate a very normal muscle potential through the spinal reflexes. So we're just saying, okay, is this sound vibration causing a a muscle to flinch? Now, with superior canal dehiscence, they've got that extra third window, so tiny sound vibrations are creating a vestibular response. So instead of putting in 100 decibels, we could put in only 60, which is normal speaking volume, so it's not a loud sound at all, and they will actually get the muscle to respond, and that's when the surgeons can say, okay, that's abnormal, extra vibrations are getting in, like let's take a really good look at this CT scan and see if we can nut down the diagnosis. Yeah, exactly, because that's, I mean, that's essentially, that's almost, that's, that's a physiological presentation of your Tulia phenomenon, you know, yep. in small sound, small sound, small, you know, uh, sound stimuli are actually having an effect on the balance system. And so yes. that to me is, you know, I, I, so the first investigation I always do really is a CDEP. Because if mm-hmm. the CDEP is negative, then it tells me we really haven't got the right diagnosis and we need to look further. Um, the CT I only really organise once I know, right, the CDEP shows as a decreased amplitude, um, also decreased threshold, uh, increased amplitude. We need to, this person, physiologically has supracanal dehiscence. Let's have a look at the CT because that then guides me as to what surgical approach could be adopted for this patient. Yeah. CT really is only after I've since the diagnosis to then say, well, what's the best way, what options are available for us to surgically treat the patient? And I, and I guess also checking the anatomy is normal because you don't want to go and do surgery if there's some unusual anatomical structure that you're not kind of ready for so just checking out the environment yeah exactly um there was another thing for me 
when I'm seeing people a lot, for me, it's a lot of clinical history. So I'll be saying, when are you dizzy? For how long are you dizzy? Now, these are normally brief spurts, like a flurry of spinning or unsteadiness. It's often triggered by a sneeze or blowing your nose because that's when you change the pressure of the inner ear system. And people will say things like, I'm singing in choir. And I'll get these dizziness during some of the singing. So the actual vocalization of their voice and the people around them is creating that sound stimuli. And so it'll be very much embedded into your daily life. And between events, you actually go back to normal. So you'll get this little flurry of dizziness at specific times that you can quite easily describe. So for me, that's how I can differentiate it from Meniere's or vestibular migraine or labyrinthitis, neuronitis, persistent postural perceptual dizziness is you guys can really describe it quite well. And they're short, brief little um, flurries Mm. and it's not positional. So it doesn't matter if you're bending over, doing up your shoes, rolling in bed, looking up. It's much more about the sounds within your body, eating, chewing, swallowing, blowing your nose and um, maybe loud knocks at the door or Anything that's just a little bit of a shock can, can bring you into that spin. Very common to get anxiety. Like you're getting constant shocks on your system and your brain is having to interpret rapid amounts of vestibular information in large pockets. So the vestibular nuclei is under a lot more pressure. That's the midbrain. And that can result in some fatigue, stress, anxiety, and a lot of the emotional coping challenges. So these are some of the things I'm looking for. And that's when I'd say, I think you need to talk with someone like Harry to get that medical investigation to see if surgery might help you. So if we look at somebody um, who has quite an extreme condition, these are the ones you work with. So they might have changing tinnitus noises. So they're getting new sounds in their ears and their head, constant dizziness, with um, just very normal daily movement. So their window is really moving abnormally and it's driving them crazy. Like they cannot think straight, they can barely sleep, they can hardly look at computer screens and work. So they're becoming quite disabled and debilitated. When we go in and give them back just two windows, that means they can then have that controlled system again. And so a really new technique Harry has you know, taught me about is we've got this ordinary movement of two windows in the healthy ear at the round window on the oval window and the abnormal one over at the superior canal. And so what Harry's saying, it's hard to get to that superior canal. It's very invasive and complex surgery, but it's easy to get to these ones, the round window and the oval window near the middle ear. Is that correct, Harry? Yeah, it's a lot easier access. It's easier access, uh, a lot less invasive surgery um, because we don't have to get to the superior canal Yep. We get into the middle ear, which we do all the time when we do middle ear surgeries as simple as the grommet. Much lower risk. And so they can actually block off the movement of one of those. Do you do the round or the oval window? The round window. And so that would just mean that you've only got one window moving in the middle ear and the second window is now the superior canal window, which is kind of genetically being formed. Mm-hmm. And that can have really great impact in reducing people's sound sensitivity and that extra vestibular information and they can return to normal so that those VEMP signals no longer cause the anxiety and that extra, um, well, it's vertigo, the, the extra dizzy information. So they can return back to normal kind of sensory inputs and sensory life. 
So how new is this surgery technique? Um, look, it's, it's kind of been described, uh, it's been described throughout the literature as case reports mm-hmm. probably in the last five, six years. Amazing. Uh, something that Vince, my, uh, one of my mentors, uh, came across uh, with discussions, actually having discussions with one of mine as old colleagues um, as a possibility. And, and certain people have reported a small series of between eight to 10 people and had pretty good effect. Um, and so it was something that we discussed and thought it was a great opportunity, you know, it's a great opportunity to provide someone with a relatively straightforward surgery rather than uh, either a middle cranial approach or transmastoid approach, uh, both of which are more involved surgeries. Uh, They take slightly longer and they carry certain risks of, you know, the middle cranial fossa approach because we're going inside where the brain sits, not necessarily into the dura, but we're getting into the cranial cavity. There is always a theoretic risk of having problems with seizures after surgery in the middle cranial fossa. The risk is in reality is very, very low, but that's a significant risk that we always have to counsel our patients about. And we we see them. So I've seen people who've been in that 1% and they're like, damn it, you know, I never thought it would be me, but it happens. Yeah, it does. And that's, it's it's a significant risk. And um, whereas the transmastoid approach, even though, you know, technically it's, it should be relatively straightforward and safe, there's always a risk of causing permanent hearing loss to be like a membranous component of, of, of the vestibular labyrinth. Yeah. And so, and yeah. Is, is the damage because you can um, accidentally hit the hearing nerve and so there's damage to the nerve pathways or what's the, what's the, the surgical? So the surg- it's, it's, it's a rupture of the endolymphatic membrane. I mean, you, so oh, yeah. operating, when we do a transmassoid approach, the way that we... we treat the superior canal dehiscence is that we essentially we shorten the superior semicircular canal we take it from being a full ring to a horseshoe so we we completely occlude the top half of the superior canal so that it's no longer a circle it's more like a horseshoe uh, and so that stops uh, transmission vibrations up to the third nerve. but I to do that we yeah i think when i was at university they called that plugging so instead yeah. of having a, a circular flow of movement moving freely, they plug it. So it's no longer a continuous flow yeah. and therefore it's not aggravating those vertigo pathways. Yeah. So it's, in, it's inhibiting its function, I imagine. To some degree, it's generally not too bad because you've got a lot of redundancy in the system. The problem occurs yes. that if during the plugging, if you cause a tear in that very, very thin membrane, similar to, the, similar to what happens, you know, but to a much larger degree to what happens in many instances, if you tear that membrane, that can then result in permanent hearing loss. And again, it's very, very, it's hard to know, you know, a lot of people will have a tear and have a temporary hearing loss. I think it's better as the tear repairs. Some people are left with permanent hearing loss and we don't know. It's very difficult to control or to understand who will do okay, who won't do okay. So that's always a risk. The risk again is very low, but still risk that always come through when you do a transmastoid approach. And, and can I also ask from just a practical level, like the day-to-day of recovering, I imagine, now I'm no expert in this surgical stuff, but I did my master's with Rob Briggs and he taught me a lot. 
He's a, does a lot of acoustic neuroma and vestibular schwannoma surgeries. But so when you go through this very simple new technique, which is in the middle ear, you just go straight in through the ear canal. Yeah, we go, so so we the, go through the ear canal. There's no incision behind the ear. So the same way that the same approach that you would take to do a stapes operation. So we go through the ear canal, we lift the eardrum up and we isolate the round window niche, which is just below where, just below and behind, so just below and in front of where the oval window niche mm -hmm. is. Um, and what we do is we, um, I'll make sure I've got access to the niche. I'll remove any sort of membranes over it. And then we just pack off that niche. So we basically lock it so that no sound wave transmissions can be transmitted across there. So essentially, if you look at your trampoline effect, what normally happens is that the round window uh, bulges into the middle ear with every transmission of impulse through the oval window. Whereas if I pack up against that round window, it no, can no longer bulge back out again. So there's no longer that ability to relieve the pressure through the round window. It forces the pressure to be relieved through the superior canal dehiscence. So you cement wall. Yeah. So you're essentially forcing it to become a two window system through the super yeah. Um And then just to come back to some of those other ones you're talking about, that's where you will actually have to drill through bone and yeah. access. So the recovery process would be quite more meaningful because it's like you're healing bone and incisions and yeah, it's a longer recovery period. It generally requires a stay overnight in hospital. There's an incision or um, most people will notice an improvement in their symptoms, no matter which method you use. They'll notice mm -hmm. an improvement pretty much straight away. Mm -hmm. um, but there's always problems associated with healing from all your other incisions. And certainly middle cranial fossa approach, you've got to recover from the fact that you've had an intracranial operation. And that takes, you know, variably from days to weeks to months. This procedure is a day procedure, so they get it done and then yeah. they go home some day. They wake up home some day. I'll... I'll often, if it's done in the morning, I'll send them home the same day. If it's done in the evening, I'll keep them overnight and send them home the next morning. But the recovery is like having a stapes operation, which is really straightforward. And I think my, my client who recently had this done by you, I think she was at tears, like within 24 hours of the surgery and, and just recognising how much her result, like she no longer had that extreme sensitivity to vibrations. Yeah. And she felt just the weight of the world drop off her shoulders. It was a really calming impact that suddenly she didn't have three windows. She just had two again. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was a very emotional realization for her. It was relief, huge relief. Yeah. So do you want to finish up our chat by just talking about, okay, who is this for? Cause you and I both know there's a lot of people out there who are desperate with vertigo and they may have no thinning of their inner ear bone, they may have something like vestibular paroxysmia where they have short, brief flurries of dizziness, but it's not coming from this bony area and they've only got two windows. So just to be really cautious that people know this is one specific solution for one specific condition. And you may be experiencing a lot of frustrating, persistent, daily, brief vertigo, um, but doesn't necessarily mean there is a quick surgical fix. So this is quite a unique condition that has the mechanical um root cause yeah. but yeah do you want to talk through who is this not for 
Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this is essentially, this is only a, an option for patients who have um, superior adhesions. So it's a problem associated with the presence of, of, of three windrows. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily something that will even work for everyone with superior adhesions. So equally, I've had one patient that it hasn't worked in. And mm -hmm. it's been interesting to look at her case because one of the things that she has is she has a very, very large superior canal adhesions. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at her CT scan, um, it's almost like a, the, a chunk of bone has just been divided out. And so most people, when you see them, there's a small window um, where she has a chunk of missing. One of the things when you think about physiologically what this is doing, this is diverting um, fluid pressure waves through the vestibular labyrinth. Mm -hmm. And that's not normal. But in patients that have a small round, small supraecanal dehiscence, have the symptoms of supraecanal dehiscence, particularly autophony, mm -hmm. those patients will do really, really, really well. I think, and this is based purely on my experience, I think that patients who have a very large dehiscence in their superior canal and that's something we can only really appreciate with modern ct scans mm -hmm. they have massive dehiscence and their symptoms are largely um are largely balance related to the point where you almost question the diagnosis because they're having balance problems all day long i think one of the things that can happen when you do a round window obliteration like what we did mm -hmm. um for your patient is you when you do that, you force flow through the superior canal. Mm -hmm. And if someone has a very large window, I think that what you can do is you can basically, you can stop the autophony, but you're almost directing the flow that creates the uh, Tulia phenomenon. Yeah. So the, the, the increased vertigo information coming to those eye muscles. So the inner ear and the eye muscles are working as a team. And whenever the head moves, the eye moves to keep our vision nice and stable. And so when we've got that extra pressure moving into the balance window, this new little trampoline, that can create extra vertigo information that's unwanted. So after surgery, the clients are like, I'm still dizzy. My eyes are still everywhere. Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. And so, yeah. you know, the beauty of this procedure is that it's reversible. So ah, good. It's, it's, it doesn't work then I can reverse it and at the same time that we do the other procedure. So the plugging. Yeah. And so I've got a patient who we're going to schedule for a plugging because, you know, we perform the procedure and interestingly enough, immediately after surgery, she felt great. She mm -hmm. said, I feel amazing. I feel really, really good. And the next day she's like, Oh, not so sure anymore. And then mm. she me at two weeks and was like, yeah, look, I'm, I'm still having issues with dizziness. The autophony wasn't there but she was having issues with dizziness. And when I looked at the scans again, and when I thought about it, that's what I, that's what I ended up coming up with in my mind. I was like, well, probably what's happened is we're now forcing fluid through because the window is so large, you are getting a huge effect. Whereas other patients where the window isn't so large, you're not getting that kind of, um, you're not getting the same kind of vestibular feedback as you are with 
Well, I guess it's like a little trampoline versus a big trampoline. You know, you get bigger bounces from a big trampoline and smaller bounces from a small trampoline. So size matters very much so in these very fine systems. Exactly. And so I think this is a procedure that certainly should be, I think it should be provided as an option for anyone that physiologically shows that they've got a third window. Yeah. So anyone that has a positive CBIMP and is symptomatic. Yeah something that should be provided. I mean, I have patients who, who have a third window and they had the autophony um, and they have a tulia phenomenon, but it's only really a problem in certain situations. Like they say, look, when I'm in a, re- you know, if I'm in a room with my kids, you know, with my, uh, my kids and they're screaming, going nuts, I feel uncomfortable or, you know. So it's manageable. It's like. Manageable. And certainly yeah. patients, I have plenty of patients who see me and go, yeah, look, I have the symptoms. I'm glad you told me what it is. And now um, I'm fine. That doesn't really bother me exactly. Those patients don't need anything done really other than just observation because we know that the condition can progress over years and years and years. And if you develop symptoms, then at least you can come back. Um, but patients who clinically have, uh, it affects their day-to-day function. You know, for example, in that scenario, I have a patient who is a school teacher. Yeah. Um, and they can't work, you yeah. know the school and they try to teach and the noise causes constant imbalance and, and they have real trouble doing it and they exhaust at the end of the day. I have other people who have where the two-year phenomenon is so bad that when they, um, you know, when they're walking down the road, if a car horn goes off or something goes off, they actually become vertiginous and that's not safe. And so those situations where it is affecting your ability to safely function in the day-to-day uh, capacity, those patients should be offered a surgical solution. And I think if anyone that is, looking at getting a, having a surgical solution should be uh, considered for around window obliteration in the appropriate looking at cats looking at symptoms saying you know this particular approach could work for you i think they should have had that opportunity because that's a very it's a low risk procedure which you know is it takes, it takes a lot of stress off the brain too so anyone with vertigo who is listening, whether that be many years, vestibular migraines, superior canal dehiscence, persistent postural perceptual dizziness, Melderbachman, any of these diagnoses, I think it's really important you have had sufficient medical investigation and advice. And that could mean getting vestibular audio testing, whether that be VEMPs and calorics and head impulse tests. Always nice to get an annual hearing test because you'll be amazed at how much information we get from a hearing test and monitoring changes. Uh, for superior canal dehiscence, you really need to see an ear, nose and throat specialist, a surgeon. And for your migraine symptoms or persistent postural perceptual dizziness, that's more the neurology role of things. But either way, the brain is having to moderate these abnormal and error signals that you're processing and feeling. And so the physical, mental, emotional and coping aspect of that is what do you do in that three seconds of dizziness? What do you do in that 10 seconds of spinning? How do you actually help your brain gain proprioceptive information? So the touch to help restabilize yourself so it doesn't actually become dangerous. And it's that whole thing of you may have four seconds of really horrific spinning and that four seconds can ruin your whole day or ruin your whole week. So I really encourage you to not only get medical advice which is super important but also get some support tools for yourself to understand what you're feeling and be able to stabilize it so if it happens you know what to do about it and you can stay safe 
And I mean, that's super important if you are driving and it happens or crossing a road, you need to be able to have control over your arms and legs to maintain that sense of um, safety. Yeah, but a question we do get a lot, and then we might close the call up, but is do you feel people with this type of vertigo can drive? You know, a lot of people stop driving and they really start withdrawing from life. Yeah. What's your professional perspective on this one? Um, I think it's a very difficult question to ask because it really depends on your range of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly if you're someone who... Uh, just have an exquisitely sensitive Trulia phenomenon. You're right. It, it, it probably isn't safe to drive for prolonged periods of time. Um, you know, sure, driving down the street to your local corner store is fine. But if you're someone who has an exquisitely sensitive Trulia phenomenon and you're stuck in traffic, that can be, you know, that can be horrible. Now, luckily, I don't really, <laughs> I'm not really uh, in a situation where I get a lot of traffic. But, you know, if you're driving through, if you're in Sydney or if you're in New York or if you're you know, in London and you're trying and to... Someone honks you. Yeah, that yep. can really affect your ability to, to drive safely. And so in those situations, it probably isn't safe to drive, uh, at least until you've had something sorted. And that's a reason to go ahead or to look at surgically treating you because that isn't safe at all. Uh, certainly if I had, you know, I... Um, well, well, what's happening is as you're holding the wheel and you're getting that disrupted vertigo information your eyes are actually moving so you do not have stable vision however it's generally very brief it's generally like less than three seconds even quicker um and i know plenty of people actually who have that brief intermittent vertigo and they're able to maintain their stable vision very quickly and so they're on top of it and they feel confident and so that it can move in both directions so i always say to people never do what you don't feel ready for don't rush, don't multitask because you're only going to exacerbate the associated anxiety, which is basically going to inhibit all of your repair. So anxiety really does play ha- havoc with the vestibular system. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I think it, it is a very, it's a very personal decision and it varies from patient to patient. And it's something that yeah. It really is something that we sort of deal with in, in, in consultation because... I have plenty of patients that drive and they're fine. I have- the vast majority of my patients drive and I encourage them to build up locally and get yeah. all the skills and tools they need. And if you have one day a year where you can't drive, no worries. Like just take a day off. Doesn't mean you have to stop for the rest of your life. That kind of. No, no. And, but it, we have to also recognize it is a bit of a gray area. Like I had a yeah. last year who, you know, was referred to me and he's a pilot. Ooh. Um, and you know, thankfully he didn't have SCD. He, mm-hmm. he had, he had, uh, six, he was, his auditory problems. But once we excluded SCD, I mean, that was one of the reasons he came to see me. He was like, what's going on? Can I fly? What and was the diagnosis? I didn't catch it. He had a secular chain fixation. Okay. So that's the inner ear bones. A little bit rusty. Think yeah. about them as being caught up and stuck. And so that was causing his auditory problems and he didn't have any real balance problems and certainly nothing vestibular. He could fly. Um, but yeah. And so he could fly, but that was certainly, that was the first thing in my mind. I was like, Oh geez, if you do have either, you know, in my mind, I was tossing up between SCD and, and hydropic hearing loss. And I was like, if you have any of these things, I don't know whether we can get you fly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that is something that needs, it's, it's a really, you know, 
especially with SCD, it's a newish kind of diagnosis. We don't, there are no rules. There are no guidelines. We are sort of playing it by ear, so to speak, with every patient. <laughs> Pun intended. I think, I think it's really important that everybody feels safe in their body. Like this body is where you're living. You're born with this, right? It's your vehicle. It's your home. And it's important you feel safe with whatever's going on for you. And it could be that you literally have error signals that you're having to live with and process, but we need to reset them. We need the brain to create new filters because the brain is capable of actually pushing aside information that's not relevant or helpful and drawing in upon information that is. And for vestibular clients, that will be your proprioceptive system, which is touch, muscles, and it's our orientation system. And that's what people use who are born without vestibular function. They just have an anomaly there at birth. So we have to use the information that's helpful and useful, and that's something we retrain. So that's all about getting strategies and skills, and that can take, honestly, a solid year or two. You know, it's not necessarily like a snap fix. But to reset these vestibular pathways and create the safety, it is possible. We do see it. And sometimes getting surgical input and advice is part of that journey. So it's, you know, I think I really encourage people to look at the whole aspect. It's not mind over matter. You can't meditate your way out of this. You have to really look at all the, the science, all the investigations, and also take a look at that holistic emotional component too which i think can be overlooked so i oh, definitely I mean, very important i think that's why a lot of patients will find improvement with meditation and acupuncture and all those things and it's because you're not you're not really affecting the physiologic problem but you are managing the anxiety and the um, the psychosocial component of what compounds this problem and i think a lot mm -hmm. of patients just managing that is often it's huge it's huge different for everybody so if you have superior canal dehiscence or you're not sure you can visit my website seekingbalance.com.au there's plenty of free information and resources and home exercises to help you get on top of anxiety and start to get in touch with the full vestibular system including the touch system and I'm going to also add entonthebay.com.au, which is Harry's link. And so if anybody wants to get in touch with Harry and potentially get a second opinion or talk about things, then he's somebody that you can have in your support team. And you can talk with your GP about moving forwards if you feel you need to have this conversation. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Harry. No worries. Thanks for the call. And keep doing the great work that you are doing. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jack.